Bobby, I haven't actually asked you this. Can you tell me where Put Your Socks On comes from? Man, um, it's just that first decision that you have to make in the in the day when you're thinking about going out and training or racing. You have to look at your kit. You got to make sure that it matches. You got to make sure that the, <laughs> the socks are in good condition. And really, after that, you're committed. After that, you got to put on the shorts, arm warmers, whatever it is, click on the helmet. But, you know, that, that decision to put those socks on and to match it with your kit, that's where it all starts. Former Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby J invites you to put your socks on. Winning and losing, training and racing, agony and defeat, all of it comes down to understanding what works and what doesn't. For that, you need an experienced and accomplished coach. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers, to educational, entertaining, and actionable advice. Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of racing. Legends, fan clubs, at the races, super fans, and how it all works. Join Coach Bobby J alongside his outskirts visionary co-host, Gus Morton. Prepare to be prepared. It's time to put your socks on. Hello and welcome back to the show. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We have another jam-packed episode today. My name is Gus and I am with... Coach Bobby J. And this is Put Your Socks On, stage two of the Tour of California. It was it was a big boy today. Um, 214 Ks, 14,000, over 14,000 feet of elevation, something like 4,700 meters. Finished up at Lake Tahoe. You know the area well. Just give us a little, just give us a rundown. How to to go out there? It was was long. Yeah, that was a doozy. Um, I think everyone kind of circled this on their list and said, man, I hope no one lights it up too early before before they start, you know, suffering from from altitude and whatnot. Um, It looked like it was a, you know, a breakaway got established pretty quickly, a group of seven guys. And it looked like a tactical battle there, didn't it? Every time the breakaway accelerated, the peloton accelerated. Every time they slowed down, the peloton slowed down. But man, oh man, with what about 100K to go when EF decided to start setting a very hard tempo, definitely everything everything changed. Everything changed right then and there. And it got real quick, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously... You see big time sprinters getting piped off the back, and you can just feel for them because, man, that's that's a very difficult thing to come back from. Because, like, when you're climbing at altitude and you go into the red, you, it's very difficult to recover. That's why climbing at altitude, you got to keep such a governor on it and make sure that you don't go into the red because it'll take you two, three, four times longer to recover if you do go into the red. Um, yeah, I did have a so- house up there for a couple years. I didn't yeah. spend much time on the south side climbs, which were featured in today's. I was more, I lived on the Nevada side of North Lake Tahoe, but there's just so many you. climbs up there. And everywhere you went, you know, people would talk about Greg LeMond and how he used to do these crazy training rides and what his time was up Geiger grade. That was definitely before. I don't think he ever did it officially, but there was some folklore out there that he had this record. And on, I think it was Tuesday nights 
we would get together and do time trials up Geiger grade. And I remember my one of my buddies gave me a set of climbing carbon wheels. And obviously I had my training bike with my training wheels. And he's like, oh, I want you to get the record and this is going to help you get the record. And I had done like four hours in the morning, then taken a little bit of a rest and then gone over and done this time trial. And apparently I broke his record and my friend was so excited. He blamed it because <laughs> blamed it on him giving me the wheels. That was the reason why I rode so fast. But I, I really doubt I broke his record, but they said I did. And, um, had my name etched in stone there for a little bit. And since then, I think a lot of people have gone out there and broken it. Beautiful place to train, but you definitely have to respect the, the altitude bands up there. Yeah, and, and just to, to, to follow on that story, is that climb, the, the Geiger grade, is that you know like the kind of the testing ground for that area? Is that where like anyone who goes up there, when they want to sort of see if they're, if they're moving or not, they go That's there what, and hit that climb? Uh, you know, that's the, the legend Mate, and it was a stunning, it looked like a stunning day up there today. Uh, as you said, EF, you know, everyone was a little reticent to get going and then EF lit it up. Lockie, my little bro, got to plug him. He hit out and that really that really kicked off off proceedings. And then from there, it was a, it was a bit of a free-for-all. Groups were kind of forming and breaking up and and it ended up being a really exciting finish um, with Casper uh, with uh, Askreen winning his first pro win. TJ Van Garderen up there. It's, it was a bit of a surprise, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? EF definitely took the race by the scruff of the neck, no doubt about it. And um, you know, at the beginning, I was thinking, oh boy, you know, TJ must be panicking a little bit here. He's not in the group, but you know, he knew what mm. he had to do. He was probably very well aware of how much distance was left, and you saw he was just ripping the pedals off the crank arms there towards the end. And you know, he doesn't have the the highest you know power or frc accelerations compared to a guy like casper i mean man that guy got second in tour of flanders and won yeah one of the hardest stages of tour of california at altitude wow um yeah he was there... constantly on the attack too just doing crazy stuff like on the downhill and and yeah he was on today and you can tell because he was able to slip away from the group on every downhill that he wasn't a little stick figure like your brother looked like today. I mean, man, yeah, does that yeah, does that exactly. boy Getting does that boy eat anything? Does he eat anything? <laughs> no, I mean, he's lean. He got he's, the he got the genes for for being a, a good bike rider. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah, great great race um, overall for sure. Yeah, it was. It was good to see. Um, big casualty there was Cavendish dropped ninety two k's to go, um, and and I want to get into this kind of in in a bit more depth. Um, in in the knowledge section uh but yeah he was dropped early and that just shows you that that there is a big differentiation between the sprinters and and the climbers in in these in in the professional peloton let's move on to the knowledge let's get coach coach bobby out i want to ask you for today's kind of deep dive is um and it's it's based off a quote that nathan Haas made at the start of of today he said uh and i quote it's not very often that you go from sea level to 2500 2800 meters without ever having a break in on the pedals it's virtually it's virtually uphill for 110 k's and for those power geeks out there your average power is exactly the same with or without zero because you're always on the pedals now can you kind of 
what does it what do they what does he mean by with or without zeros and and can you kind of break down how a stage like today is just like it's it's a grind yeah i mean average power is with zeros so um, when yeah. you're climbing and then you have a little bit of a break, you look at your average power and say, oh, my average power wasn't so high. But with normalized power, it definitely gives you a more realistic feeling of what the physiological cost on your body was for doing that effort. For example, I get yeah. people asking me quite often why in some short sprints or some short intervals is my average power higher than my normalized power? Well, that's because normalized power is an algorithm. It's not a, it's not anything more than that. So it's like a, I believe it's like a 30 second kind of rolling curve, which is kind of taking into a, account a bunch of other things. But, um, yep. you know, due to that algorithm and that 30 second or so sliding filter, that data can be underrepresented in normalized power and correct in average power. And don't forget that in another equation, which is, you know, a big time algorithm, how do you calculate yep. TSS? TSS uses normalized power instead of average okay. power. And, that's and TSS stands for training stress score, right? Training st stress score. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So, yeah, normalized power is that estimated power for the same physiological effort that you would do compared to a steady state effort. And a lot of people think that normalized power is just average power without the zeros, but that's um, in fact not the case. Yeah, got you. And so today with the altitude and everything like that, like how's, I guess what, what's, what's someone's power profile looking like today and what's that the normalized, normalized average power kind of relationship looking like? Sounds like it could be easy to kind of trick today into not seeming that hard. No. Um, well, today, especially at the beginning, unless you were jumping around and making tons of accelerations, uh, once you got on the climb, your normalized power and your average power were probably identical or very, very close. Yeah. You know, when, when mm -hmm. you're doing a criterium, for example, your average power can be 150 watts, but your normalized power could be 250 or 300 it just depends yeah, wow. on, on, yeah, it, it's, it's massive sometimes. But today, I would assume uh, many, many of those guys, they were just going, they, they know what, how to ride at altitude, which is be very careful, be very steady. Um, that's why the, the groups you know, were splitting and coming back a little bit. Uh, I yeah. was actually looking at Richie Port, the way that he was bringing back some of those groups. He didn't have enough to get across to that, that final group because, yeah, they were pretty isolated there. But he was never jumping around. And the moment yeah, exactly. you start jumping around, you better be very careful of your efforts because, man, the lights can go out pretty darn quick. Because like I said, at altitude, if you go into that red zone, you, you, there's very few ways out of that box. And you saw that with Ballerini there at the finish, right? He hit it at the bottom of that climb and everyone sat up. And I know it was a couple of Ks, but he got a, a, a gap quick and big and, and and then in exactly the same way that gap just disintegrated you know within a matter of seconds like it sort of seemed like he stopped and I guess that's it right he just he just went into the red he was setting up uh, his teammate and uh, and once he once he went to the red he just that was it lights out well what a great race that guy had I mean he was sprinting yeah. he was in he was in the breakaway sprinting for the king of the mountain points 
and, and then got caught and was able to absorb that acceleration and then even attempt to make a, a dash for victory there at the end. He had an amazing yeah. race. I mean, that guy, him and, yeah, you definitely have to give Askreen a, you know, a thumbs up because that was, that was impressive. But Ballerini was in that breakaway sprinting for those KOMs and then able to do something at the end. And that boils down to proper fueling. I mean, obviously, everyone was making yeah, gotcha. some huge efforts today. But who has a little bit of gas left in the tank? You know, who has that, that extra gel or that extra energy drink that, that gives them that little bump? But, you know, TJ, as you saw, you saw him ripping the, the pedals off the crank arms. He realized that yeah. he probably knew what was going to happen is, hey, that guy can only sustain that power for X amount of seconds. So I'm not going to jump him because it's going to put me into the red. I'm going to bring him back slowly. And to be honest, man, I thought he was going to come back on Askreen there at the end. I mean, he just he just yeah, had that yeah, he exactly. had that look that hey, I conserved more. I was more efficient throughout the day. And when you back it the tape up, all those attacks that are going off the front, and I was like, wow, TJ must be panicking. He was riding a very very intelligent race, and you know what? It paid off because now he's in the yellow jersey. Yeah, and he was, he looked calm, like you know, even at the finish there, like he knew what he was doing and, and and he was controlled, which I guess lends itself to him him having not gone in the red, right? When you go in the red, you tend to to make desperate decisions and do kind of dumb things, but the whole time he was he was just kind of he looked like he knew what he was doing and was really in control of things. It was it was good to watch. It was good to see him ride yeah. like that again. Another side note of a guy that obviously knows how to climb at altitude uh, was your brother. Mm-hmm. You know, when he yeah. attacked and it was all out of the saddle, I actually counted his RPMs and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. It was 75 to 80 RPM because when you stand up, obviously your heart rate goes up because you're, you're recruiting more muscles in that effort of yep. propelling yourself forward, right? But as we know, yep. when you're doing torque work with lower RPM, your heart rate doesn't go up as high. So when he made his attack, it was very almost slow motion. He had a lot of power behind it. He was standing up using his body weight to get the pedals around, but he wasn't necessarily like revving the engine and, and really raising his heart rate high quickly. He didn't get that. It wasn't a snappy attack, but it, it worked, right? I mean, he, he definitely yeah. put down some, some, good, some good power right there, but that just goes to show you a guy that knows what he's doing when it's time to attack when you're climbing at altitude. Exactly right. Exactly right. He looked as good as I've seen him for a long time. Um, and and I want to actually talk about another guy who, a, a young guy, and this kind of goes uh, into another another part of the, the show that we want to talk about, which is like the young riders. Um, and and Tadej Pogacar, um, the young guy who came across, I think he was fourth at the end, but he actually came from the main group um, and and snuck across to that break after everyone had left. Uh, after sorry, after the break had gone, he's only twenty years of age. Um, so, what, what, like these young guys, it seems like they're getting younger and younger and and better and better. Um, what's your take on that? Like that idea that it takes you once upon a time, you know, it's like oh, you get good when you're twenty eight or you're thirty, um, and now we're seeing guys who are who are you know far younger than that. Yeah, my hat goes off to him because obviously he has a lot of pressure on him. He's very young. Um, he's the leader leading a team. He's won a race already this year. He won the tour of Avenir last year. So he's got a lot of expectations. Mm. Um, but for him 
you you I don't he either had the best DS or coach in his ear the entire time or he just has that natural ability to control his efforts because man I thought that he he missed a couple important moves especially for a young guy you'd think they would want to you know yeah. get get ahead of the race a little bit so he was uber confident but then when that final acceleration went he kind of got stuck in no man's land luckily he had a teammate with him and they both were able to get back up to the front but yeah exactly i think we saw a guy put a feather in his cap and grow up right in front of our eyes because like we said before this isn't a normal stage he's a very young rider you're supposed to make mistakes when you're young and learn from them that's part of life right especially especially in bike racing but he showed an amazing uh resolve today amazing patience and this guy the sky's the limit for this kid it's it's pretty impressive yeah it was very cool it was very cool to watch and i'm sure um i'm I'm intrigued to see how he goes on the steeper slopes uh later in the week let's um you know we've sort of talked about well you've, you've explained basically um the technical the technicality of of the data of today and and given us a bit of a breakdown of of the effort so let's let's try now and 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 if i want to go out you know and essentially replicate that like i want to get good at doing these long climbs you know i'm doing a race that's i don't know six hours long as an amateur what am i doing how are we transferring or how are we replicating an effort to get good at that type of thing well below 1500 meters it's a totally different story but over 1500 meters and especially up to what 2600 meters that they're out today um the bottom line is just teaching yourself how to do steady state efforts um controlling controlling that effort and making sure that you know hey this is an hour-long climb if if my ftp is 350 watts and i do the first five minutes of this climb at altitude or sea level for that matter at mm-hmm. 550 um where am i going from there i'm going backwards because no one's going to be able to do an hour-long climb at 150 to 200 watts over their threshold right so it's it's yeah, learning exactly. your body and it's 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 pushing your limits but at the same time knowing where that limit is and staying there as long as you can and i like when when i'm training athletes i like to teach them how to go in progression and one of my old coaches told me this story about, Bobby, when you're doing a time trial or you're doing a climb, you want to be like a carpet unrolling. You know, at the beginning, imagine a big, huge roll of carpet and you push it and it's going around slow. And then, you know, as it starts to unravel, it's getting faster and faster and faster and faster until, boom, the carpet is done. When the carpet is done, that should be the top of the climb or that should be the finish line. If you roll out the carpet and you still have 1K to go, let me tell you, you're going to give back a lot of time in that final kilometer compared to someone that knows how to judge their efforts better. Yeah, gotcha. So it's 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 about it's as much about um, how much power you put out is about how well you you know yourself and and being able to 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 sustain like to get in a rhythm and and kind of hang in there. Yeah, how efficiently you can create that power. You know, you can see, and, and in this case, you want your average power to be very close to your normalized power. If you're jumping around, yep. you may have the same average power, but your normalized power will be be higher, but you maybe went up the climb slower compared to that. So, you know, w- when these guys attack, and that was, you know, Contador's beautiful um, yep. ability, right, is that he could accelerate 
and put you into panic mode. And he knew that his ability to recover after that sort of effort, he couldn't ever maintain that effort when he accelerated from the group all the way to the top. But he could, he taught his body how to recover at a higher wattage or a higher heart rate or a higher tempo than the next guy. So he would, when the guy was trying to accelerate up to him and panicking and doing it way over his limit, it just took one, two, or three of those efforts, those accelerations to crack that guy once and for all. And then Alberto would go on on his steady state and, and just unroll the carpet. Um, you know, we, we studied how he attacked. And, you know, yeah. one, one of those guys that benefited and learned from that was, was Chris Frome. And, you know, he, he is that one guy that, um, well, not anymore because a lot of guys, I think, have learned that technique, is ride within yourself and you know, start to unroll that carpet when it's time. Don't unroll the carpet when when somebody makes an attack. You got to be disciplined. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that at the world tour level. And it's not just guys looking at their power meter all the time. It's it's just the sensation. It's the feeling like you know what? I'm going into the red right now. I better kick it down a level. So at altitude, especially. You need to listen to your sensations. You need to listen to you know your legs, your lungs, and make sure that you're not putting yourself in a situation. And which a lot of people forget when they're in that sort of sustained, difficult effort is you still got to fuel. You still got to take on sugars. You still got to hydrate. And you know that's difficult to do when you're in the middle of you know a twelve round boxing match going up you know some hour long climb and <laughs> you know today two hour long climb. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a really good point you made there. I think that a lot of people, are, you know, it's easy to say about bike riding in the modern era that, oh, yeah, these guys are just looking at their at their power meters. They're just robots. But you just said then that, like, you know, you got to be able to feel it out and you got to be smart. You know, when, when a guy is surging and hitting and, and surging and you, you know you can't follow that type of ride, you go within yourself. And I think we saw that there today with... with um, uh, with Van Gar- with Van Garderen, excuse me, with Van Garderen at the finish there, um, he was he knew what he was doing. He was confident in his ability, and he just rode within himself. You only have you know so much glycogen stores left in in, in your body, and you know most elite athletes have four hundred and fifty to five hundred grams of that. And then you have to look at your carbohydrate combustion rate. And let's face it, when you're going hard, you could be combusting you know many 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 hundred to two hundred grams maybe even 300 grams more than you're actually able to refuel. Because remember, your body can only take on up to mm. 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, but say you're combusting 390. You're, you're in a deficit there, so that means that you have yeah, better... Yeah, massive have, deficit. You met, better have started with a, you know, a full tank of gas, and then as soon as that climb is over, you better start really hitting the, hitting the fuel or even during that climb hitting, hitting the fuel. And that was one of the really interesting things that uh, Chris Frome did and Team Sky actually documented how they did it was in the Giro last year when Chris did that long, long-range attack. They had, yep. they had guys on the side of the road with energy drinks, and I guarantee you if you would have missed one of those bottles, things would have been different on that last climb trying to hold off Demolin uh, going up to the finish there and taking over the, the, the pink jersey. So fueling really is, it's so it's that touch and go oh yeah at that level i mean come on he was he was going flat out <laughs> holding off you know the what the reigning world time trial champion at that time and three or four other guys in the group and man when you run out of gas um sorry 
it, it's 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 over. You see those NASCAR guys, right? They're winning the yeah. race, and then a lap and a half to go because of a miscalculation with the fuel. What happens? They run out of gas and they get past. They them. run out of gas, and it's exactly the same thing. Great analogy. Yeah, that makes yeah yeah. I guess it makes total sense right there. They're high performance machines. Let's um, let's uh, take a take the super fan question. He uh, he called in earlier, left a recorded message. Uh, let's let's see what he's got. Hey, howdy, fellas. Oof, oof, oof. Good day for spectating today. A lot of the riders, though, man, looked rough coming across the line. Tell me what it's like to get finished with a day like today and get back to the hotel and find yourself stuck in a room with a dude blasting Europop or snoring louder than a jackhammer. What makes a good or bad roommate? Who are your all-time favorite roommates? How nice or terrible was it rooming with your brother, Gus? How do you think you guys would have gotten along rooming together? Bobby J and Gus, good talking with you. Talk to you soon. Ciao. Okay, Bobby. So tell me, when you finish a stage like that or in, in back when you were racing and you get to the room, how, how, like what's the roommate situation? Um, how, how can that, you know? play out do you ever get stitched up as they said with the euro techno or yeah tell me some stories <laughs> yeah i mean a good roommate is crucial to a long career and um jens and i still have a exclusive um what would you call it rooming policy even though we haven't seen each other or room together in years and yeah roommates are very <laughs> very important you have to have that guy that doesn't get on your nerves that isn't you know snoring that isn't listening to music uh, too loud, that isn't talking to his girlfriend until, you know, 12 in the morning, that doesn't turn on the lights when it's not time to turn on the lights. Um, I even had, Chris Boardman was actually pretty funny. Um, You know, when he would walk to the bathroom in the middle of the night, he would actually sit down when he had to, to pee in order not to wake up his roommate with that annoying splashing sound. And I thought that was pretty no darn. Way. I thought that was pretty darn cool of a guy of his stature to respect. If it was a Neil Pro rooming with him, or if it was one of you know the the other co leaders of the team, he made an effort to make sure that he didn't disrupt the other person's recovery. Um, That's cool. One one of the, the the funniest times that I can remember of rooming with a person that let's just say I was not uber conf- comfortable rooming with. <laughs> was when I went over to Europe in 1995 and I was a reserve for a race that I can't remember, uh, maybe the Tour of the Med. And I was rooming with Sean Yates. Yes, the legend, the Banff, Mr. Sean Yates. And back (laughs) then, Sean loved olive oil and he loved garlic. So he had the, the Soigneurs pour out half a bottle of olive oil pack it with, I don't know, 50 cloves of garlic. And he would take the the clignot, uh, the, the butt of a baguette, rip it off, scoop out the the um, the dough in the middle and basically oh, fill the end of the baguette <laughs> up like it was some sort of cup and then digest this. And let's just say um, our room was, was quite smelly. But do you think me as a first year professional over in Europe was going to say anything and oh dude you're not saying a word not a word and I just got in and I got in my bed and I think I was writing in my journal and all of a sudden at 9 30 without saying anything 
the TV went off and the light went off and he basically said goodnight and rolled over. There I was. I hadn't brushed my teeth yet. I hadn't finished, you know, I was in the dark. I had my book in my hand still. But man, I tell you, I... And it I, just stunk of garlic. And it stuck, stunk of garlic. But yeah, a teammate, <laughs> a, a roommate, especially after a stage like this, you, you need someone that you can talk to, um, you know, share the war stories a little bit, but then also just just be quiet so that we you can concentrate yeah. on, on your recovery. Um, so yeah, Jens was like a second brother to me. Uh, we always say brother from a different mother, but like with you, mm. did you ever room with your brother, your real brother? And how did that, yeah. how, what was that like? I mean, you guys probably got on each other's nerves uh, pretty quickly if you wanted to, right? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Like, so when I came back to racing, um, we were, yeah, teammates. So we roomed together like almost exclusively uh, and we and we had almost the same race program. And my job in in all of the races was to, to, to chaperone him and then to, to put him in position at the, you know on the on the bottom of the final climb um but it was actually so he and i get along really well um and we don't like i guess our relationship like you don't we don't really need to talk much so i thought the good thing about rooming with your brother was i mean one you, you just did whatever you want because like you're not really offending if you offend your brother you just like deal with it sort of thing so like, if you're annoying them you're just like whatever um so you didn't really have to be courteous too courteous um, but then also like we kind of go to bed at the same time. We just sort of watch like similar TV to watch and stuff. So it was, I thought it was great. Um, and then in, in the last year I rode, uh, rooming with a bunch of different people, um, was, it was a bit, it was a bit weird. I must admit, because I kind of had to like, put, you know, be on my best behavior a little bit and make sure I was thinking of them as much as, as I should be and, and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, it was fun rooming with Lockie. It was fun. Uh, and so I was lucky, I guess, in that regard. Um, but I don't really have any horror stories uh, from my time because I mainly, yeah, everyone was pretty good now that I think about it. I mean, I guess you're all trying to race to your best of your ability, right? And and you kind of all get in the same groove when you're racing the same race. You've got to be at breakfast the same time, dinner's the same time. You kind of sync up a little bit. Um, you, but, also, you also have to give each other a little bit of space too as well, right? Like yeah. Jens and I, I don't think you could have picked two different guys to room together as long as we did. Uh, I was very organized. I wanted to get in, you know, just relax. Jens would come in, yeah. turn on the TV, talk on the phone. I should have learned German much better than I did <laughs> hearing all those conversations that he had with his wife. But at night, I would, you know, do my stretching and he would be on his little Game Boy or his little device and he'd kind of look down at me and say, gosh, I need to start doing that. And I think that was seven years and I never saw him stretch. And then the year after I retired or two <laughs> years after I retired, he moved over to Trek and he was like showing people the, like his morning routine. And I just called total BS on that. I was like, that's that's a camera ham there. <laughs> I, I roomed with you for so yeah. long. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he would stay up a little bit later than me, but earplugs and eye shades were still to this day go everywhere with me because you could have a bad yeah. roommate and even a good roommate could have a bad night with, with snoring or maybe having to talk to his wife or maybe wanting to, to binge a little bit more on the TV or the DVDs or Netflix or whatever. Yeah. But, but man... That is the best investment I made my entire career was a nice pair 
of eye shades, not those ones that make your, your face sweat behind them, but I had a, a Tempur-Pedic eye shade, which I bought at an airport. <laughs> I lost it, and then a teammate of mine actually gave me another one because he's, he goes, I don't use this crap. Like, I see that you use it all the time. Yeah. And then earplugs, man. I tell you, when you just need to zone out and go to bed at your hour, earplugs, eye shades, boom, you're done. Sensory deprivation just... I could never do that. I, like one, one, one skill I learned when I, um, when I left cycling for the first time, when I, I went and worked in TV and, we were, and uh, it was a, we were doing the show I worked on for a long time, we would work really long, odd hours. And so I developed a really good skill at being able to sleep anywhere. Like we'd be in like Parliament House and I could like crawl under the bench and just fall asleep. Um, and so when I came back to racing, it didn't matter what was going on around me. I could just shut, shut right out. Yep, um, that's the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. You got to have that parasympathetic system turn off as quick as you can after the race, and um, that'll that'll help the recovery for sure. And moving on to tomorrow's stage, those guys right now, it's like they're just finishing the stage. They're getting that parasympathetic nervous system fired up. How are they? Uh, what are they doing, sort of now and then, and then into tomorrow? Given what tomorrow's stage is going to be. Man, I'm sure they're they're slamming all sorts of carbohydrate, carbohydrate slash protein drinks, uh, trying to get some more liquids in. But remember, you need to get down back to sea level. So I'm sure they're yeah. all traveling back down to the start area tomorrow. And, you know, that's another two hours in the car. A lot of the times you have to wait for your teammates to finish. So tonight they're going to be getting to bed pretty pretty late, I would think. Um, it's It's a pretty straight shot from Tahoe down to uh, the Sacramento area or Stockton, wherever they're starting tomorrow. But, you know, that's just another couple hours that, man, compared to a guy that's still kind of pinging from the race, compared to Mm. a guy like Rigoberto Uran, he was very similar to you. Like, as soon as the race was over, he would probably, you know, take his clothes off, take a shower, come out, eat something, and, man, he would be out instantly. The entire voyage or the entire transfer, he'd be out. When other people are still, you know, yeah. talking shop a little bit, you Dude, know, check, checking yeah. their phones, doing all that, you know, keeping their sympathetic system kind of humming still. And, and that's, that's what it takes in a stage race. It's all about recovery. So hopefully they got some good food in them. They got, you know, a nice shower. They're sitting in a nice, comfortable car and they're getting to that hotel as quickly as possible. So what you're saying is that dimension data they have no hope tomorrow because they're going to have to camp on the mountain tonight until uh, until Kevin Cav gets in, right? <laughs> well, let's just let's just hope that he had a support car behind him that was at least keeping him fueled for the effort. Um, because if he didn't have that, he would be in in crisis. But let's keep our fingers crossed for Cav. I haven't seen if he if he made the time cut yet. I think it's super important that he does, and hopefully we'll see yeah, him at exactly. the start line tomorrow. Yeah, fingers crossed. And talking about tomorrow, what is the stage? Yeah, tomorrow is Stockton to Morgan Hill. Um, It's definitely that sort of race that uh, begs to have a big breakaway at the beginning. You know, you got about about, 30 miles or so before you hit the first categorized climb. And then the -hmm. the meat of the race is kind of in the middle, right? And you're going to have yep. breakaway specialists. You're going to have guys going for the KOM. You know, they're going to be well represented in that breakaway. And you're going to have to give them a little bit of leash. And, 
you know, a team like like EF EF is is obviously very very strong, but they're going to have to control the race. Um, I don't think yeah. it's going to get super sticky, but that that climb at uh, Mount Hamilton. Yeah, midway through. Yeah, I think mm. there's 55 miles from the top of Mount Hamilton down to the finish, and then you got a few other little bumps, um, you know, with about 13 miles to go. But that you're up on that plateau for a while. You're climbing for quite a while and doing three category three climbs, and then you hit yeah. the horse category Mount Hamilton, and that is not an easy climb. And guys are definitely going to be a little bit tired from today. Um, that descent yeah, exactly. of Mount Hamilton, you know, you that that's not the easiest descent you'll ever do. I think this was the second part of that descent was where Tom Squeens actually crashed yeah. and had a very bad crash. And thank goodness his yeah, director pulled him off the road because that kid is hard as nails like most cyclists are and probably mm. would have continued if, if somebody didn't make a, a, a quick decision there. So, you know, you got to keep yeah. the rubber on the road. You can't let your guard down. And, you know, I think we'll see a, a, a decent group at the finish line tomorrow. Not the full peloton, yeah. but um, you know, but it could also be a, a good day for a breakaway. Yeah, I mean, exactly that. Like, uh, I think tomorrow's small group. My picks, Travis McCabe. He was, uh, I think, he was inside the top twenty on today's stage, which was insane. Um, or maybe not, maybe just outside. But he was, he was within, uh, he was in that front group right up until the end. Um, I, I, I saw that as well, and part of me was like, "Hey, good on you, mate." But the other part was, man, save it for tomorrow. I mean, Sagan, yeah, exactly, Sagan, exactly. Sagan, you know, pulled the pin, uh, looked after himself, mm. and you were up there trying to go for it. And I love Travis McCabe. He's a great rider. He's on fantastic form. He obviously is prepared mm. for this race. But, man, you got to pick your battles a little bit. And you hit it on the head. He True. would be absolutely dangerous tomorrow. And he still may be. We, we hope he recovers really well and pops yeah. up and is, is ready to roll again. But part of me was, out of sure respect, impressed. But the other part was, man, you know, maybe you should have looked at the race book and picked your battles a little bit better. But yeah, we'll, gotcha. We'll, we'll see yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, and then the other way, like we were saying yesterday, the Tour of Cali is a bit of a weird race, you know, like all these Euro guys are out of their typical rhythm, recovery, all that sort of stuff's you know different for these guys each time and and last time the race went over over this mountain um a group of four gc guys went away um so you know long way to go but stranger things have happened right stranger uh, things have we happened see. for sure for sure but i cool. i did like the representation of the u.s national team we had quite a few americans up there at the pointy end of the race today you know we had yeah of course we had tj um, at, at another time, we had Nelson doing an amazing job for his team. Uh, Travis, obviously, yeah. we mentioned him. Lawson, uh, Rob Britton. Yeah. You know, these guys, these guys. Britton were, had a great ride. He was fourth, uh, yeah, fifth. Yeah. Um, I think he was seventh. But at the same time, like, yeah. it was okay. great, great seeing those guys up there flying the flag for the U.S. It is an important race for, for them, for us. You know, we as spectators, as fans of the sport, want to support them and when you see a guy like tj doing what he did today um it's fantastic for everybody all the americans uh watching the race yeah exactly fingers crossed it can uh, it can it can it can keep keep going in in this direction okay and bobby coach bobby before we go i've got a couple of texts here from the guys in the stage today i've got one from Lockie, one from uh finney 
and then one from George Bennett. Oh, I can't wait! <laughs> I can't wait to hear, hear Taylor's. Dude, he had a great ride today. Um, I think like he was he pumped it right um, for those guys, and then like I just that, it's such a thankless job when you just like on a on a day like today and you just swing off. You, you max yourself out, set your team up, and you swing off with like 70k to go, and you know that you've just completely fucked yourself, and then you've got to ride that last 70k somehow to the finish, you know, and make time cut and whatever. Good on you. Um, so, first up, Lockie, good man, long day though. <laughs> yeah, read into that how you want to. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then this one's from Finney, who... Uh, did a really good job for the for the team and cooked himself early on with Alex Howes, who they 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 kind of made the whole race right. And he just wrote to me, was a sh- was a schlog, although it's spelled S C H O G, so he forgot the L. Um, which you know, I guess he's it was a schlog. He's he's cooked. <laughs> uh, and then from George Bennett, okay, boys, in one kilometer, turn right, and then the next hundred kilometers are uphill. All of those, I think, are very insightful. Pretty much uh, explains <laughs> the day for a lot of those guys. That's for sure. There was there was <laughs> nothing too tricky there until a couple turns at the end, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, and with that, that's stage two of the Tour of California. And that's the show, guys. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing. Um, if you haven't done so, please do check us out over at Velo News and uh, keep your ears peeled for more Velo News voices. Uh, don't forget... Put your socks on. Cheers, Bobby. Uh, catch you tomorrow. Aye. Thanks, guys. See you tomorrow. Sorry, Jens, of all people, was just calling me right now, so hopefully you didn't get that. I got to text him and say can't talk right now. He's probably like, what the fuck is this? Hell no. Vela News Voices is a new multimedia platform featuring a collection of cycling luminaries, each with their own distinct point of view and channel. Coaches, athletes, movers and shakers, visionaries, the old guard, the new guard, the vanguard. Vela News Voices is how and where the story of our sport is being told now and into the future. Fizzo is hosted by Bobby J and Gus Morton, produced by Manual for Speed, edited by Eddie Rogers, and a special thanks to our anonymous superfan. Don't forget to share, follow, and subscribe on SoundCloud. Okay, 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 okay.